0: Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote?
1: Welcome to the second season of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABACs Technologies and I'm Michelle Denity, your co-host and fearless guide through the intersection of privacy, security and digital technology this season. My guest this week, Dr. Greg Lavender, SVP and Chief Technology Officer of VMware. Greg leads VMware's global technology research and innovation programs, with the primary goal of positively impacting and shaping the future of the organization, its ecosystem, customers, and society at large. Before joining VMware, he served as managing director and CTO for cloud architecture and technology engineering at Citigroup, where he led the global transformation of city IT to adopt modern mobile and cloud technologies. Over the next 60 minutes, Greg and I will explore VMware's 2030 agenda and the role digital innovation serves in advancing ESG, an agenda that Greg manages and directs globally for the company. Stay tuned. My interview with Dr. Lavender is coming up next.
0: And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets.
1: So, Greg, thank you so much for talking to us today on Smarter Markets. How did you get to where you are today, and and what is your inspiration for becoming the CTO of VMware?
2: Yeah, Greg Lavender. I'm the CTO at VMware, and it's a very great culture here at this company, and uh, I was recruited here by Pat Gelsinger, who, of course, now is the new CEO at Intel Corporation. So I've been in the company about three and a half years, but I came here by way of Citigroup, which uh, Global Financial, I took a break from my long career in Silicon Valley, went over to the customer side for six years, thinking, um, yeah, I spent my whole career building the pieces that you would use to assemble a global cloud or a global financial institution, and uh, I wanted to go put the pieces together and build something significant and big, and so I thought it would take me three years. It took me six years, and I aged 12.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So let's go a little bit further back into your deep dark past because you're actually Dr. Lavender. Can you talk a little bit about your studies and and the way you talk about cloud makes it seem like everyone just embraced it and said, of course, Dr. Lavender, there's going to be cloud and we're going to embrace it and use it for everything that we do.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll just say that uh, it's been many years since anybody called me Dr. Lavender. I mean, I was a university professor for several years in my younger days. So occasionally I still bump into a student, you know, in Silicon Valley. A lot of my students are, you know, working in tech, and so occasionally bump into them at grocery stores or other venues, and they they still refer to me Dr. Lavender, I guess, out of respect for having taught them many many years ago. But you know, I think it, it pretty much, you know, lots of PhDs running around Silicon Valley. We don't sort of use that formal title anymore. But yeah, I mean, I started my career in the early 1980s, likely right out of right out of undergraduate studies, implementing the first generation TCP/IP protocols. Connecting to what then was you know, the DARPA Net, the precursor to today's Internet. So I kind of cut my teeth early in sort of network protocols, network software engineering, and decided so I wanted to go get a PhD in that topic. And so went to uh, grad school and got a master's degree in software engineering. My undergraduate degree was in computer science, and then a PhD in networking distributed systems. So in some sense, for me, the cloud is just the natural evolution uh, over the last forty years of the, the fundamental innovations that came out of the internet and of course the evolution of microelectronics, semiconductor you know technology to get to where we are with multi-core, multi-socket, high density servers, you know, memory flash, you know, the entire component technology that we build computing on around the world these days, not to mention the telecommunications, the optical networking, et cetera, all these things have converged over the last you know three or four decades to kind of create the current environment we have today. So I think you know, my whole career has followed that path. I spent 10 years at Sun Microsystems, led the Solaris Engineering Group in my last three years there as VP of Engineering. Went over to Cisco, which, of course, is the premier networking company. Spent a couple of years at Cisco leading uh, core network protocol engineering and embedded network operating system engineering. So I've always been a networking, operating systems, hardware, software interface person. And so VMware is a natural home for somebody like me as a long time infrastructure person. And again, I would not, I would say that the six years I spent is a diversion in some sense from my normal career path was absolutely stunning in that I get to see the world of technology from the eyes of a customer and really understand how to put this technology together, dealt with cybersecurity, not just you know, data center engineering, data center architecture. And so I really understand deeply and fundamentally all the technologies that go into running a major multinational business. And also the economics, I call it cloud scale, cloud economics, cloud speed, and cloud security. Those are kind of four principles I articulated at Citigroup on which we built their private cloud, their hybrid cloud, and the use of the public cloud, which we did there as well.
1: So I'm a data geek. Obviously, my next job has to be at VMware because I, too, spent 10 years at Sun and then Intel and then Cisco. So obviously, I need to come and work for you guys (laughs) at some point.
2: I'm doing the fun. It's a lot of fun here.
1: Yeah, one of my roles at Sun was Chief Governance Officer for Cloud before anybody really was using that term. So I, you're you're a man after my own heart, Greg. Let's talk a little bit about that interface that you were touching on when you were dealing with financial data. Financial data, particularly to North Americans, is one of their most sacred, private. Types of transactional things. It's one of the few things that we don't talk about on on morning talk show television these days. How is the sensitivity of the information and the business growth related to how the technology sort of has evolved over the years? And or am I just making something up in my mind? Where do you see that going? The relationship between the data and the tech.
2: This is like you know major question today. I think you know not just for financial services, but any company in which you know data. And I would say, you know, it's not just it's not just the data, you know, you've heard this expression before. You want to turn data into information, you want to turn information into knowledge, you want to turn knowledge into insight, and then you want to turn that insight into value, whatever the how you that value expresses. I mean, obviously, financial services companies, as I deeply understand at this point in my career, that is the lifeblood of the company, is that you know, market data, consumer retail data, mortgage lending data, you know, it's all it's a data-driven business. Therefore, it's a technology business. Some executives in banking like to say we're, we're a technology company with a banking license. They're still banks. But what they, what they really mean when they say that is that you know, the data and the applications, because they're very specialized applications, particularly in capital markets, those are the intellectual property of a financial services company, a health insurance company, any company these days, whether it's airline manufacturing, what have you. So we all talk about data gravity. We talk about data sovereignty. We talk about data privacy. We talk about geofencing of data because under regulatory requirements. We talk about GDPR for privacy rights, you know, different jurisdictions. So all these are complex set of issues around this thing we call data. And data is bits and bytes, you know, stored in some sort of multi-tiered storage architecture and in some location. I like to say, particularly under today's modern application workloads, that workload will follow data. So the data gravity becomes a really important. Architectural security and business construct that you have to take seriously. And I think what inhibits, let's say, financial services from moving too rapidly or too simply to the cloud is that data gravity, that data privacy, and all those regulatory requirements. So, when you start thinking about where you want to run your workloads, you got to start first thinking about how do you manage your data assets and how do you protect those data assets. And so, it gets complicated in the regulated industry, it gets complicated in other industries. But I think the most important thing is you say, well, you can encrypt it. Well, we've seen examples of security breaches where people foolishly left their encryption keys in like a public S3 bucket in Amazon. Somebody just scanning S3 buckets that weren't password or encrypted, you know, find the keys and then decrypt the data and steal the data. So, day two security is just going hand, hand in hand with this problem. I think really when you start thinking about even edge computing, because a lot of data is not gener- it's generated at the edge, it moves over time to the cloud. And I think there's a growing impetus in this sort of edge use case. And I don't mean edge meaning necessary sensors and cameras. Those are certainly edge devices. But an edge in banking is an ATM machine, right? right? Or it's a branch or it's a kiosk. I mean, there's so many kinds of edges that there's no one definition that defines edge. But as data originates at the edge, you want to process it as much as you can at the edge and only get the really useful data and send it back to some colo or maybe ultimately back to the cloud for long-term analytics and training to some learning algorithms. I think more and more, it's, a, it's about real-time response to data events. So data streaming with technologies like Kafka, et cetera, become really important to that processing pipeline. So in order to get the you know data to information, information to knowledge, knowledge to insight, insight to value, there's a lot of technology, and there's a lot of things that have to happen there. And I would say, finally, the most important thing about data is the metadata. It's the data about the data. And I think those companies, that's how you can provide governance, that's how you provide, you know, sort of wherewithal of what's happening to the data, who's accessing it, where is it stored, when did it move? Data becomes like a liquid. And like, if you have the, the data, the liquid, you got to have this metadata structure, which is kind of the, the pipeline that keeps control of where the data goes and who has access to it. So you, you put your finger on the most important, I think, pressing problem in the industry. It's not just about disaster recovery, backing up your data to the cloud. It's not just about putting data in that three buckets or elastic block storage, whatever the sort of technology is. It's really about how do you manage that data at a global level, you know, in, in wherever it resides. And I think that's where the industry doesn't quite have all the technology that it needs. I think this is a, a growth opportunity for the industry.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm deeply biased as a CEO of a company that does that. So yes, I agree. <laughs> There's a couple different directions I want to go here. One is sort of, the data or the electron, the chicken or the egg, do you start with data gravity because it's a business requirement or do you follow data gravity because it's something that just sort of starts to trend like cryptocurrency or or some um, streaming because we're all at home during a pandemic? I mean, which is it the electron capability or is it the data desire of the humans on the other side of the screen?
2: For many organizations, we're, we're dealing with you know potentially hundreds of petabytes, you know exabytes, zettabytes. I mean, this this problem is growing, right? And I mean, I mean, say it's a problem. Let's say the size of the problem is growing. But if you think about it, like the cost per byte to store data has just dramatically gone down. I mean, even 10 years ago in banking, for example, if you if you needed a petabyte of data, that's millions of dollars of fiber channel storage appliances, right? Today, you can store petabyte of data relatively inexpensively. You know, you may not have it, want to have it reside in Google Cloud while you do some GPU and TPU processing on it. You just deposit it there, do the processing you need on it to derive the value that you need, and then just you know delete the data because you've got a copy of it somewhere else, or you know certainly it's encrypted or maybe doubly encrypted. So I think it's about you know time to value, and I always think that data has sort of two dimensions: it has a temporal dimension, that is, what's its value over time. And it has a temperature dimension, which is what are you willing to pay to store and process that data? You know, at, at what cost? So, so let's take market data. When you do a transaction in the markets, that's when that, that transaction record is the most valuable. So therefore, you'll pay to store it on the most expensive high-performance flash technology with the most processing power to do a number of transactions, you know, processing of that data, in risk positions, and maybe number one. And you know, clearing and settlement, which happens at the end of the trading day for that data. So the value of the data is highest at the time that transaction occurs. And then as the data cools, that's the temperature dimension. As the data cools, that value diminishes. You still need it for you know, historical recording reasons, you know, sort of what, what was that transaction six months ago if there's a dispute. Then you want to quickly tear it down to the lowest cost of storage per byte could be spinning media, right? So I think you know you have to when you think about data and processing, you gotta think about this temporal dimension and this sort of temperature dimension, and then do a calculus around, okay, where do you place the data to do the best processing and the best economics with the best security to get the value out of that data? So it's a complex problem. I used to think about this quite a bit at City when I was there as part of formulating a data strategy. But everybody has this challenge. And so I think but I think we have to think differently about data. It's not the data in the database. It's not the data in the Active Directory. It's data generally, and how do we manage it? And not to throw a buzzword in here, but I think you know, if you think about data being distributed, you think about sort of zero trust models. You know, ultimately, underneath all that, is going to be some kind of digital ledger or blockchain technology keeping track of the metadata around the data, so that you have an, a non-repudiated record of what the data is about, what it means, where it's stored, who has access to it, et cetera. There's a, there's a whole sort of record of metadata that you have to keep track of that you need to be able to share to make sure that everybody, when they get a piece of data, they understand what the data is and its provenance, where it came from. Because data manipulation, data corruption, willful data corruption, not accidental data corruption, is something you have to protect against. And so having a distributed ledger of how that data is being used is really important. I certainly think the capital markets... Part of the banking industry, particularly the stock exchanges around the world and clearing and settlement. This is one of the most important new ways of dealing with distributed data in a sort of a zero trust or a, some sort of network of trust that you will use to basically make sure everybody has the right view of the right data.
1: Yeah, oh gosh, there's there, there's so many layers I want to go into. I uh, one of them is, you know, this temporal element I've been obsessed with forever because, you know, I'm a privacy gal, and so I think as your model is cooling for the transactional temperature and the the risk actually decreases that it's going to cause positive activity in the banking community or or any community really think about it research and viral efficacies of drugs or whatever, as it gets cooler and cooler, it's cheaper to store But it now starts to get hot for loss and the exponential creation of risk. So now that no one cares about that lump of data because it's not transactional, it actually becomes a honeypot for if someone steals it and the metadata describes something that is inherently about an individual, you've got 160 different jurisdictions of hurt so, how do you deal with the now that we aren't hot on using it transactionally? It's cheap to store, but it's getting really expensive to govern data. How do you deal with that sort of ethical balance as well as it's a systems problem?
2: Yeah, you know, the data governance is a, again another. It's a multi-dimensional problem. There's at least six dimensions to this problem, right? Humans don't think very well beyond sort of three, and we do okay with four dimensions. But time is the fourth dimension. So I think you know you get into these uh, multiverse of of data dimensions. It, it gets it gets complicated, hard to sort of just parse through it in a simple way. But yeah, I mean the whole again the govern the governance aspect of the data beyond the storage of it, the st- where do you store it, how do you protect it, how do you ensure when it moves it moves to the right place, doesn't break some jurisdiction regulatory requirement. Some countries don't want their, the data, the, let's say, consumer retail banking data. You don't want it to move out of the country. You want to maintain sovereignty over that data in the country for regulatory reasons. Regulators may, may do a subpoena and ask for that data. And so you don't want to be you know, taking data from, let's say, Korea and storing it in Hong Kong. right? Even if you encrypt it, which means the bits are different in Hong Kong than what they are unencrypted in Korea, Regulators may still not want that, even the encrypted version of the data stored externally, even if you keep the keys in in the original country. So these, these are all complicated factors around that. I would say something I didn't mention before is data quality. What I've seen and observed is after that original transaction, we'll call it the pristine data, it typically fl- starts flowing through multiple channels of post-transaction analytics, manipulation, analysis, what have you, and therefore, it can have the chance for data quality problems to creep in, and so therefore you have to have a provenance trail to say from that original transaction as it moved from hop to hop to hop, database to database to database, you know, Hadoop cluster to Hadoop cluster, did the data corrupt itself? Was there additional data added to it that obscured the original transaction? So all of a sudden you have this sort of mutation problem. It's like a, in, um, if you ever study anything in genetics, there's this thing called a phylogenetic tree, which is the mutation rate of say a strand of DNA over time, as it recombines with other DNA, now what you have is you have this sort of mute, a bunch of mutations of the original data that become themselves a useful piece of data because there's all this, let's say, risk information added to it. And so this is a complex problem, and so the governance problem becomes even more complicated because you always want to know for a particular record, a particular set of records, what was the provenance of all of those records? Where did all that information that got, let's say, added to the original transaction come from? Who actually did it, and were they authorized to do it, and do I have an actual, accurate piece of information? This is why I think this problem is wide open still, despite very startup companies in this space. It's yet to be, I think, really, really solved, although there are pieces of it that you can assemble, both from open source and from commercial products, to help you cope with this problem.
1: Yeah, I I feel like this is an echo of the DRM for content that happened in the late 90s. What I frequently say is what we need is a DRM for humanity. It's not just my song that I'm putting out there with a watermark of ownership. I'm I'm putting out a story about myself every day, and and that's exponential. So all of us are creating these digital trails, and they all have provenance, but we're not capturing the provenance necessarily, and we're certainly not putting them into governable streams and processes. So that's where I want to go next with you, Craig, is, you know, as CTO, you know, part of your permit is, is looking into the future. So what are some of the things you're thinking about for data and data ethics and provenance and some of these really tough governance issues we have going forward?
2: So, look, I mean, I don't have the, the answer, right? What we have, I think what we have is we have a, a developing understanding of the problem now, dealing with we have over 500,000 customers at VMware, right? So clearly, you know, many of them use all of our you know, storage technology, ESAM. But you know, the, the key is, of course, yes, we provide all the encryption capabilities that you would that you would expect today. But again, the encryption is just the base, the basic first layer of data protection, right? So yeah, but again, I think it's we have to have a better understanding of data movements, because data is moving to the cloud, moving from the edge to the cloud, maybe moving. From the edge to a colo, it's it's moving, and so so as, as data moves, you know, yes, obviously we encrypt it end to end across the network at each of its hops. But you know, the data gets processed by some application. That application has, has keys to the data. The data ultimately migrates from storage device to some kind of memory device to do the analysis, and then then you generate new data as a result of that analysis. And you get all these complex requirements, like okay, well. Maybe I had permission to see the three data sets that I combined, but the combined data set is I'm no longer permission to see it because maybe it include, you then can have some inside information that you're not supposed to have access to. So again, these complexities become very, very intertwined. The thing I, the thing I worry the most about is day two security operations, you know, once you sort of have the data managed. And then it's the it's the derivative data off the original data that also could have, you know, again, it has higher value than the original data. So that, in some sense, becomes more important, let's say, to a financial company than the original data, because you combine it with other data that all of a sudden provides you, gives you insights, and you may, it may be competitive information, or it may be confidential PII information that you need to have. So you know whether you're doing some kind of obfuscation through data tokenization, there's all kinds of schemes, point solutions around dealing with some of these problems. More and more data is ending up in the SaaS provider's data warehouse, not your data warehouse, is the SaaS provider got the right data security data protocols in place to protect your data, not mingle it with other customer data? You know, some companies may require US citizens only can actually operate the system that stores the data, because they're concerned about that, particularly the governments. So I think you know, if you start if you start looking at all of that, you know, what I described already was already a complicated problem. It gets even more complicated when you start sharing your data across SaaS providers and other people that you know be using the data. So, you know, I'm glad you're in this business, and you said you're CEO of a data company. This is the excellent problem to solve. If we have more time, I can give you more specific thoughts about some of these things, but it gets fairly technical. Uh, These are things in the office of the CTO. Multi-cloud data management is one of our research areas we're looking at. I mean, obviously, we we launched our uh, VMware blockchain technology. We're partnering with digital assets around uh, smart contracts, building digital ledger technologies. For financial services, so I mean, we have we have pieces of this larger you know, problem space, but we as a company recognize for our customers it's one of the most pressing problems to solve. I mean, we know how to do cloud, we know how to move workloads to and from clouds, we know how to leverage Kubernetes to create horizontally scaling modern applications, and so we we know a lot about workloads, we know a lot about managing those workloads in a multi-cloud world. The question is that, as I said, if work follows data, we really got to get our hands around the data problem. You know, and it involves zero trust. It involves security. I talked about post quantum crypto. It involves you know, data disaster recovery, data retention, data recovery, et cetera, et cetera. So all the things we've historically solved for just become amplified in the multi cloud world. And so that's what we're working on in the office of CTO. Looking forward.
1: So there's going to be a harder and harder problem, I think for CTOs in particular, and particularly ones of our generation that we came up with, the question was how. And so now the question of how is going to be answered and the question of why and should. So how are you dealing with these very human problems of just because I can gather the world's DNA and and create people, should I?
2: Yeah, so digital ethics becomes really at the forefront here. There's a growing um, there's a growing awareness of this globally, and I see more of that awareness happening, up through the European Union uh, than in so let's say in the current climate in the U.S. We may see the Biden administration do some do some things in that area. But in fact, the University of Edinburgh is offering graduate degrees in AI ethics. There's uh, enough universities that I think are starting to do this. So uh, the ethic component comes into this, right? And uh, not to go too far off topic, but if you look at the uh, the CRISPR technology that's being used in genetics to do gene splicing and you know, kind of modify the genomes, um, you know there's there's a whole ethical issue around. If you think of the genome, it's, it's data, right? And yeah. so you know, but we have these mechanisms now at the at the, what we call wetware level to actually do the wetware engineering, right? Using technology like CRISPR, for which you know the Nobel Prize was awarded in 2019 to for that. So I think there's a whole set of ethics issues that's going to come out of using ML or AI technologies to, you know, for, we see the bias already. There's bias in facial recognition, right? We see bias in other data assets. So these things are going to collide. So the ethics issues have to be present for, at the forefront. You know, okay, like to your question, it's like what, what, and why? You know, should we do it? And if we do it, if we do we do it? Why are we doing it? And so I think those are, they go hand in hand with this problem. We think about this, and we have it inside of VMware, and the, the machine learning program office is in the office of CTO reporting to me. And it's, it provides, along with our enterprise data analytics organization, the, the company rules around governance, you know, keeping customer data protected, keeping customer data not co mingled separated. So I think all these issues have to be forefront in any organization that's planning complicated data management. And as you, you, your data goes out to the cloud and everything else, you have to take the ethics with it. So I think this is this is the thing that's still immature and, again, it needs to be developed along. Think of it as a part of governance. There has to be an ethics around it as well. I was on a panel a couple of years ago, uh, with, and Satya Nadella was speaking, and he, he made a great comment that I just love. He said, if you're programming in Python, you're most likely doing ML. He said, if you're doing AI, you're, you're using PowerPoint. So I, I really think of ML is the is the kind of excellent technology that we're all working with, and AI is still a dream.
1: Yeah, I, I'm so happy to hear you say that I'm constantly having this argument with people because I think that there's such a difference between backwards facing pattern matching and forward making uh you know, intuition and cognition going forward. This is an oddball out of the sky question that that you've sort of raised in my mind is, you know, so for CRISPR and, and genetic alteration, I think we can say like, oh yeah, we've got to tackle these issues. What about for the financial services? You know, I, I read once a quote from someone, I can't remember who said it, who said, every billionaire is a policy failure. What happens when we do have quantum computing and quantum banking and exponential wealth is not just something that's in the billions. I mean, in a day we can see trillions of, of "quote unquote" wealth being generated on this scale. What does it mean when that happens?
2: I'm not an economist. I'm not a social politic, political theorist, but yeah, you, know, you can't help but learn some economics when you work for a global financial institution. You can't you can't help but you know, see these kinds of issues emerging in the social. Economic and political sphere, right? Because banking is a highly regulated industry. In some sense, the regulation is always trying to catch up to reality, kind okay? of because things are moving so fast. I mean, the quantum computing, I've given some talks uh, on, on sort of high level talks on sort of the, the general quantum computing issue. And again, you know, I'm not an expert in this topic area, but what we tend to think about at VMware, what I think about more is, you know, the, the potential, the potential, because it's, it's still emerging, threat to current cryptographic. Some, some certain sets of cryptographic algorithms, right? So in the terms of it, you, know, you what's called effective quantum computing, which for current cryptographic algorithms, let's say like RSA, and current key links, you, you, know, you need about 4,000 qubits, right? 2,000 for the computing and 2,000 for the error correction. This, this is a real problem. I we'll won't go into the details of it, I mean, having studied it a bit. But there were 20-some algorithms, about 20 algorithms that the National Institute of Standard and Technology missed in the US, has defined and those are under experimentation. So in the Open OpenSSH, Open SSH, Open VPN, open source communities are trying out these algorithms, and that they're, they're going to get it. There's be a sifting process as we get down to the you know, candidate algorithms that, that will all adopt. So we're still that still process is still going on. So uh, I heard everybody used this phrase: you know, we're going to have a Y two Q moment, just like Y two We going to be really like the Y two K moment where it was a, a billion spent and we weren't really sure we needed to do it. Okay, and before we go spend billions more because of the Y two K moment, whatever that is, I mean IBM is predicting a million qubits, I think, by twenty thirty, and you know maybe you know something more interesting by twenty twenty five. Question is, at what point do we have to adopt these new algorithms? And I think the bigger question for customers is, given the the, the zettabytes worth of data encrypted with current, you know, algorithms, what's the exposure of that? There's some concern that. Certain nation states may be already collecting the data today. They they sort of penetrate. It. They, don't have, they don't have the they have your encrypted data. They don't have the de-encrypted data. They have your currently encrypted data, and they're just holding on to it till the day they can actually decrypt it. Yeah. Right. Maybe seven years from now. But they sort of you know hoard the encrypted data, and then you can crack it later. And so the question then becomes: Okay, what should we do today? Well, immediately you can increase your key links. It's Computationally, a bit more expensive, but Instead, of, you know go, go to 2K or 4K key length, right? That'll basically, doesn't necessarily give you full protection, but it make it harder. And then the question is, how quickly do you shift to the algorithms? And what do we do about all the encrypted data today? Do we decrypt it and re-encrypt it with quantum-resistant algorithms? That's a huge computational task. We'll need the cloud for that. Or do you just double encrypt it? You take the new algorithms and encrypt the old encryption, but now you're now going to manage two sets of keys. So these become these become difficult operational problems. And if you think about, let's say, let's say it takes two years for VMware to convert all of its technology over to the new algorithms. We'll run a hybrid, classical and post-quantum algorithms. Okay, so let's say we do that in two years. We got effort underway right now the company to deal with this. Let's say we're, let's say we're done in two years. It could still take customers three years to upgrade all their technology, and then another two years to re-encrypt all their data. So seven years isn't that far into the future if you actually think about what has to happen across the industry to get to a stronger security posture. We call it crypto agility. So we have the agility to pivot quickly. Whole other podcast on that topic.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're still running on COBOL for a lot of essential services. So if we think that everyone's going to shift.
2: We have a potential, I'm not trying to be scary, but there's a potential still being assessed of Y2Q. So we have to keep our eye on that.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm a little bit obsessed about that because I like to do these abstract thinking projects. But what is the 2030 initiative for you? I mean, how are you getting your head around and actually putting resources to this thing? How much is fun cocktail versus like hard work that we have to get done?
2: So I'm glad you asked that. We've actually been working on this topic. I'll say we started at VMware actually many years ago on sustainability. So today our main campus in California is carbon neutral. And you know what carbon neutrality is. It means you also you, know, you, you purchase power resources from renewable energy sources. You can buy credit. So it's, it's not like we're completely self-sufficient and off the grid, although we're putting in a microgrid on our campus. We already have our first lithium-ion batteries and solar generation on the campus that we store in the lithium-ion. They're like container-ship cartons that have the battery pods. So we actually are getting to the point where our campus is kind of completely green and off the grid. But what happened in last year was the company really embraced the whole ESG initiative. We did publish, it's on our website, it was a blog about it, uh, our ESG initiatives and our 2030 goals. Uh, Nicola Acut is the vice president, PhD in sustainability, who reports to me, who's now the VP for ESG. The company made a decision last year to move all of that responsibility, ESNG, to the office of the CTO from a company leadership and company Perspective, but it's a multi-organizational governance with HR and finance, and myself, and even the head of R&D as part of the steering committee for our ESG initiatives. And uh, one of the interesting things about that is I you know a lot about E, the environmental sustainable, from a kind of carbon-free clouds and these kinds of things, which are great topics for another podcast. But I think the S part was quite interesting. If you break it down, it's really more about you know, it's, it's, think of it as in terms of equity. Right, you know, I mean, we have a strong DE and I program at VMware, and we think you know, we got oh, we got room to improve, but we've been making great progress for over the last, you know, two to three years. But this, but another aspect of that is trust. If you break down trust, you know, security is part of trust. You know, compliance to regulatory authorities is part of trust. Yeah. So I, I find what's what's interesting about ESG besides the E part, we already have a lot of work going on there. It's the S part that I think that the industry needs to really adopt in terms of equity, trust, and including sustainability, right? We have to be honest in how we report and record our carbon credits and our carbon neutrality. So I think I think it's part of our 2030 agenda, like I like to tell our executives, I said, look, we can't wait till 2029 to get started. We won't make it. Right. Right? that means every year, this year, next year, every year we have to make steady progress toward those 2030 goals. So there's a whole, uh, the VMware website is a blog that describes all of those goals and what we're doing about it. But I I think back to the whole security question we were talking about, trust is a big part of the social aspect of ES&G, and trust compliance with our customers, with our shareholders, with our markets. So we all have to sign up to that. And I think think we're going to see, again, some action from the Biden administration around cybersecurity initiatives, uh, because it's just a depressing problem for the government and for every company in, in, in the world.
1: Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, as you've said, and, and my career is, has shadowed yours, you've been in the infrastructure and yet you talk about trust and social equity. Where does man meet machine, Greg? I mean, is this, is this something that you think about of, you know, what, what is our role in society as we're building out these large mechanical electronic infrastructure borgs? How do you frame that? you know, given your background and, and your responsibility today?
2: That's a more of a philosophical question. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten less tactical and more philosophical. <laughs> and I think this part and parcel with being in a leadership position in a major corporation is that, you know, you have to think more broadly than just your cor- current products, your current sort of corporate environment. We're, we're part of a larger global ecosystem of technology providers that's changing society, you know, changing the way we interface to nature. You know, all these things all come together. And I think you know I think again, it's about leadership at the CEO level down. Um, certainly it resonates extremely well with all of our employees and all of our customers. And I think you know again, as a technology provider, you know, running 500,000 plus customers, running a lot of infrastructure around the world, you know, again we have both a digital ethics responsibility to be able to, let's say, with customer opting in, collect a lot of information about workload usage, efficiency, power consumption. You know, security, etc. But again, that becomes another big data problem, data ethics problem, data governance problem. So it all ties back in together. So to, be, to be able to accurately report, let's say, everybody's trying to get to what's called net zero. You could look at that term. It was beyond carbon neutrality to get to net zero. And we all have to have good models for how we actually measure consumption of technology and its power-related power consumption. It's not just about power. We have to have good models, those models have to be validated independently. In fact, we just provided some funding to the National Science Foundation to stimulate some research in this area uh, around sustainability research, uh, particularly around mathematical models and how do we measure. Because if we if we're just making up numbers and we're reporting numbers, there's there's no efficacy to it. So I think you know, there are external bodies that will audit and assess that you're doing the right thing here. So again, it becomes another data problem, and it becomes a a social problem becomes an ethical problem that we have to solve as an industry. VMware is going to do its part, but I think it's going to take more of a, a joint effort across certainly all the major cloud vendors, VMware, others, to address this problem on a holistic manner so that we're all sort of measuring and reporting accurately what we're doing. One thing I can tell you though is what the cloud has driven is more consumption, right? I mean, consumption is always going up. So even if we get more efficient, we have to get efficient faster because consumption is growing faster than the efficiency rate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think even in our lifetimes, I don't think that we viewed access to the internet as a human right. And if you talk to my teenagers, they sure think it is. <laughs> That's for sure.
2: <laughs> I'm a fan of uh, the writer of my generation, David Foster Wallace, yes. who who passed away. I mean, committed suicide. He had, had some depression, you know, which is a which is another problem in our society. We'll leave that for another time. So look, uh, he he gave a talk at, I think it was Kenyon College, a little large college, small large college somewhere in the midwest in the Midwest or Ohio or somewhere like that. He gave this parable and he, it's a, sort of this old fish swimming along in the water. You know, it's on like the old fish swimming along the water. You meet these two young fish that are swimming along and happily and and the, the older fish says uh, hello colleagues. They say, well hello sir, you know, showing some outcome of respect. The old fish says, how's the water? And the two young fish swim away and go, well, what's water? Exactly. So we, take it for, we, so we take for granted. The young generation take for granted. The internet has always existed. I spent almost 40 years of my life working in this, this technology area that's exploded over that time period. And so we, I always know what the water is, right? But the young generation just takes the water for granted. It's their cell phone, global travel, global communications, you know, what have you. So we've created this sort of world digital world that people are really living in and participating in and behaving in, but they don't really understand it. They don't need to understand it at, the, at the, say, the bits and bytes level, but they need to understand the social fabric issues that are going on, and there's a whole force for good initiative in the industry around you know, getting back to the data privacy and how to use data and for what reason and what ethics. So I think this is going to come to a head. It's already coming to a head uh, as a result of election tampering, et cetera, propaganda, so I think we're going to have, to, as a global society, get our heads around this manipulation of information, okay, to, to sway public opinion without necessarily being based in facts. Whole other topic for another day.
1: <laughs> I love this. I think what we've said three times now is we need to have Dr. Lavender back on our show. Well,
2: yeah, just call me Greg. You don't need to call me Dr. Lavender.
1: <laughs> hey, you know what? I never did my dissertation, so I, I give respect where respect is due, Greg. So <laughs>
2: Thank you for that. I appreciate that, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I was informal with all of my graduate students. The other called me Dr. Lavender, out of, I guess, out of respect, but I was always on a first-name basis with my graduate students and even my own professors when I was a graduate student. So, so I think it, you know, it's, about, it's about ideas and the marketplace of ideas. You know, I, I like to say universities, research labs, which I've spent time in as well, they primarily pay to think and to share your ideas and to teach other people how to think well. Right? Somebody said, what, what a PhD really teaches is how to focus on the right problem, not get distracted by the symptoms or the secondary problems. Focus on the root cause of a problem and go solve that, and a bunch of other problems get solved. Uh, and then they say, the companies pay to do. And I'm fortunate that I work for VMware, where they pay me to think and do. For those of you that are you know, looking at your career, as you go forward, always work for a company that pays you to think first, and then go do things based on well-founded ideas.
1: Yes. Oh, I wish there were more companies like that. I wish there were more leaders like you. And I, I guess, is there anything I haven't asked you? I think we've solved world hunger even.
2: I don't want to claim that I fully understand or have the solution to these big complex problems. What I advise is that, you know, we need to be less competitive on these types of topics and more cooperative on these types of topics. Yes, Because the problem is huge. No one company is going to solve it for humanity. We have to, you know, look across the competitive posture and landscape that we operate in as technology providers or any company, and recognize that that you know, we just can't blindly roll forward into some future without addressing these fundamental issues. So I don't know. You know when I retire, maybe that's what I'll be teaching at the university: is uh, you know, get teach people how to think about these issues, and maybe the younger generation will wake up and notice the water and solve them.
1: I hope so. Well, that's what we'll keep asking ourselves. What is water? Do we remember that we have water here? I love that. That's a great sort of uh, period on the end of the sentence. Or is the,
2: is the, water, is the water, as the oceans are, becoming more polluted with plastics? So we're ingesting a bunch of uh, from, you know, plastics and the chemicals that they're made of. So therefore, we're not going to be able to think very clearly. So we've got to have clean water that we're in, and we need to understand it, and we need to basically think clearly as we go forward.
1: See, it's all about the systems model. You got to have that clean water to get the cells to work. Even if we've crisped them, they're still not going to be able to take the PVC plastics.
2: So, well, these are these are complicated problems, and uh, hopefully, I've, hopefully for your audience, I've given them a perspective. And you know, if I could share a bunch of, of Wikimedia and other links, I would share them. But you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll pull together a blog on the VMR website and tile this together for you.
1: Yeah, please do. So there's the VMware blog where we can follow you. Or is there anywhere else our listeners can follow you and, and learn more?
2: Yeah, yeah I mean, have to link, LinkedIn, you can follow me on LinkedIn. In fact, I just posted an article uh, last week on the seven principles of innovation that we follow at, at VMware. So if you go to my LinkedIn page, it's Greg Lavender, one word, you know, on LinkedIn, um, you can see my latest, it's a short article, and then that article links to a blog I wrote on a larger perspective on innovation in VMware.
1: Terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time, Greg. It's just, your insights are amazing. And, um, we purposely didn't script this because our first prep conversation was like, there's 10 different directions and, and it's kind of like wherever you wanted to go that day. So thank you for being flexible with us as well.
2: Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I, I have to say too, I have a great staff in the office of the CTO. We have a great company at VMware. It's great culture. And, uh, so I would say, uh, those those aspiring people that want to participate in this thing go to com and look for opportunities.
1: yeah i love that does privacy report to you too no we don't we
2: have we have uh our cso and you know that organization tends to own the the privacy aspects of what we do but it's it's a combination of legal obviously i, I participate in it you know because of the trust issue of you know ESP. Under under so we we have a we have a we have a diverse leadership team at the executive level vp and above level that you know, care about these things and, and bring it all together with cybersecurity, our, you know, our D&I initiatives. We, we look at this as a holistic set of things we as a company have to do, both for our shareholders, our employees, and for the markets we participate in.
1: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets as much as I did, featuring Dr. Yeah. Greg Lavender, Chief Technology Officer at VMware. Please join us next week as I sit down with Anne Rosenberg, SVP for Sustainable Development at Wood, a global leader in consulting and engineering across energy and the built environment. While serving as SVP of UN Partnerships at SAP, Anne co-created SDG Ambition with the UN Global Compact at the WEF in Davos an initiative that challenges and supports companies in being more strategic and transformative in how they run their businesses to deliver on the 2030 agenda and build on the emerging global ESG framework. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's so fun and cool. Your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help, spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABACs Technologies, I'm Michelle Dennity. Please tune in again next week for another exciting installment of Smarter Markets.
0: That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit SmarterMarketsPod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.